What's up, Predators? Thanks for tuning in to the audio portion of the Smasher Pass broadcast with Travis and Dean. If you want to catch the video portion of it whenever we go live, check it out on YouTube at Apex Predator Outdoors and at Lung Crusher 53. Whenever we go live there, you can comment and be part of the show live. Comment and talk to our guests and uh, be a part of the show. So if you want to check it out, again, go check it out at Apex Predator Outdoors or Lung Crusher 53 at YouTube and be part of the show and also guys go ahead and subscribe and like and hit that little notification bell so you can be reminded whenever we post new episodes of the show and also subscribe to the feed here wherever you're listening to it so you can make sure that you never miss a new episode thanks predators and as always keep defying the odds all right let's see we are live let me turn the music down a little bit here we're jamming out all right so uh, what is going on, Predators? Today we have a special guest coming on the show here in just a couple minutes. But right now you've got Dean and I here. We're here with uh, the Smash Pass podcast. So welcome in. We're going to be talking today to uh, Cliff Gray, and we're going to be getting some insight into uh, probably one of the foremost outfitters. He's been doing this for years and years and years, and he's, you know, he on his website here, it says he's run the most uh, remote uh, and largest uh guiding outfit in north america so it'd be really interesting to talk to him he's got a great youtube channel you can go check him out there over at cliff gray or pursuit with cliff is his website uh pursuitwithcliff.com that is uh but we also got dean here what's going on dean nothing much buddy man how's uh, life been treating you well uh you know just living the dream i guess one day at a time <laughs> yeah i hear you man i hear you we are um getting ready for tack if, if anybody out there is is interested in doing that or doesn't know anything about it it's a great way to get out and uh make sure your bows are tuned in and uh have a lot of fun with some like-minded people and check out some different merch and get some tips so uh always want to promote that event um yeah, we we go out travis and i go down to the one in san antonio every year and it's a three-day shoot it's cheap uh, and you have a, a great time. So looking forward to looking forward to getting down there. There we go. So there's the man, Cliff. How you doing, Cliff? Good. <laughs> hey, sorry, I got I got to take my uh, carpal tunnel braces off my hands. <laughs> do uh, we do we interrupt your dinner? <laughs> yeah, uh, do my my life is a bit of a uh, do it when you can type of type of situation. So. I'm, well, a, I'm, all, I'm all good. I won't, I won't eat during the podcast. No, it's, it's totally fine. It's not going to offend us at all, man. Yeah. <laughs> we always like to keep this nice and informal, man. We do what you want. So, uh, but yeah, we, we were just talking about you. I already gave a kind of a real basic intro to you. So, uh, man, if you don't mind, just go ahead and tell everybody who you are, what you do, what you've been doing, because I think you've got a really awesome past. We want to find out more about that. Yeah. So, um, so my background is I primarily outfitted in the flat tops wilderness in Colorado, basically for the last 10, 11 years. And then I, I did a fair amount of guiding before that. Also, uh, most of my business was elk and deer in, uh, uh over the counter elk unit in, uh, in the flat tops. And it's, it's no secret what units they are, but they're 25, 26 and 24 was where I spent probably 90, 90% of my time. And then I sheep and goat guided kind of throughout the state. I had kind of an assortment of permits, so it's kind of all over the place. Um, does that kind of give you a, give you a, the lowdown? 
Yeah, man. Like I say, we uh, we really like to see somebody that's experienced. We like to uh, the whole point of this podcast when we started was we want to get uh, access to people who really just know their stuff and have been there and done that and walked the walk for people that sure. are just getting started. You know, so you can uh, give us some insight onto you know what's. Uh, I mean, honestly, it's just the best approach to all this. And uh, I think this year is going to be my first year elk hunting. Dean's been for the past like five years uh, going okay. up in Utah. And uh, so, yeah, we're going to talk about a little bit about that stuff. And uh, like I say, I, I saw that you had also been trying the carnivore diet. I've been watching your videos sure. and stuff. And I want to talk about that a little bit and some of your experiences in that. So, uh, oh, okay, sure. Yeah. yeah and, and I wouldn't honestly on that, Travis, I wouldn't call myself uh, an expert by any means. I, I have done it for a couple years at this point. And it's, mm -hmm. it's kind of crazy how much time time blows by, man. Uh, oh, yeah. But uh, but yeah, no, for sure. We can we can talk about it. So Cliff, one of the things I was going to ask you, uh, like I said, we kind of target some of the brand new guys and even, even for myself, um, yeah. when we're, we are hundred percent DIYers, but we have done guides for duck hunts and things like that. If from a guide standpoint, somebody calling up wanting to book a hunt, what would you say is the best approach or questions to ask a guide to kind of narrow that person down? Yeah, in terms of like screening guides mm -hmm. or outfitters and options. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, is, so I'm gonna I'm gonna give you like a broad answer, and we'll sure. and we'll key in on on hopefully some valuable tactics for people. I, reflecting on all the hunters I've dealt with and and all the kind of matchmaking I did over the years of like you know this hunt's gonna work for this guy or this hunt for that guy or whatever. I think the biggest thing in where people run into problems on both sides, the outfitter side and the client side is just expectations, right? Just that the hunter had different expectations than the outfitter maybe portrayed on purpose and was just dishonest about something potentially, or in the, I personally believe this is the majority of the cases. It just wasn't communicated well, what the outfitter was offering, you know, what the hunting was like in that area. And then kind of where, the outfitter guide really thought their value added is. And so I think that's probably like one of the main questions I would ask a guide or outfitter. And this goes across kind of, you know, all spectrums of hunting and we can delve into the, the different, different kind of types of elk hunting that, that uh, guides and outfitters are helping folks with. But I would just ask them, you know, what's your value added, right? You know, what, what's your value added in the area that you're guiding or the, the services you offer. So if a guy came to me and they said, like, if, I, if I'm talking just about my elk hunting business, I provided essentially two different services, fully guided stuff. And then I provided drop camp, uh, mm -hmm. drop camp businesses, which are, or drop camp services, which are in a way very much like a do it yourself uh, setup, but the outfitters providing all the logistics, the camp, the packing with the horses, the, the horses and mules, the access, that sort of thing. So I would say, look in the drop camp, what I'm providing is it's a public area. It's a, you know, it's a federal wilderness. I can't provide that. There's going to be, you know, way less hunting pressure. You're not going to see any hunters. That's not something I can provide, but I can tell you that I'm going to get you in somewhere where it's going to be really hard for somebody else to get into like the, you're going to see other guys, but they're going to have to work at it. Mm -hmm. And your, your accommodations in a drop camper are going to be way better than what anybody could take in on a backpack. Right. And then I'd have a, I'd have a different answer for the guided 
the, you know, the guided service I offer. So I think that's a valid question and a good question because if the guy can't answer it, that's like a huge red flag right off the bat. You know what I mean? Dude? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then the other thing is the guy might answer it in a way that just doesn't, it doesn't jive with what you're looking for, you know? So, so it's another screening process in, in that regard too. Gotcha. Yeah. I know it, 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 it seems like sometimes it, that people tend to, and I've, and I've had, I've not personally had this, but I've had some friends of mine that, that went on a guide uh, horsebacked in and never even squeezed a trigger. And mm-hmm. so my first impression was, well, you know, I thought that was kind of the point of kind of going with a guide was at least they would know, you know, we, we've been watching this herd or watching sure. something to kind of get you at least to see something. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, a good yeah. question. That's a good yeah. question too, is like uh, from a guide's perspective, from you seeing that, I mean, it's got to happen eventually that that happens where you go and you've been tracking them or whatever. And then you go there and it's like, you know, there's just nothing there. I mean, you have you ever encountered those kind of situations and how did y'all roll with that? Yeah. I mean, so public land elk hunting on all the different services I offered, you know, that's not, it's not uncommon for elk to move between, you know, between one rifle season and the next rifle season, particularly given in Colorado, like all your rifle seasons are stacked up when your weather comes right so you know like early october through november it's you know one year october 10th can look like november 20th in the next year so it's all like the weather is very volatile that time of year so you can't really pattern elk in a big wilderness area by like the day of the year or the rifle season or whatever now having said that generally because we've been in the area so much you got a pretty good feel for it particularly you know when we were guiding out of the same camps season after season we generally know beforehand if the weather hasn't changed or some something real significant hasn't changed we know so, like where where to start i was helping him organize all his <laughs> what was that? <laughs> that? It wasn't on my end, was it? No, no. <laughs> I was trying to pull up the feed here. I'll make sure everything's going well on YouTube here, just to double check everything. <laughs> uh, I got you. you know, something else started um, playing. But, uh, but yeah. Uh, sorry, man. Threw me off a little bit. Oh, but uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it happens. It happens in, in public yeah. wilderness hunts. Um, even guided hunts can be can be very you know they could be trying if if uh if the conditions are are rough you know yeah and i can imagine that is gotta you know wreak a little bit of uh frustration really on both parties oh, yeah. too right you know yeah uh, going into that and so do you i, I li- literally just watched um your your show on how people get frustrated after day two and when the kind of the grind comes in sure is that do you notice that is happens more often when you're not seeing anything or hearing anything that does that kind of play in the psyche of of your hunters or oh yeah yeah so if you don't if you i mean i think that goes for all hunting but when you talk about this wilderness stuff the and i yeah i guess i got to frame that within frame that so the context is right dean all the hunting that i did or I shouldn't say all of it, but 80% of my outfitting and guiding was in wilderness areas that anybody could hunt, right? And they're mm-hmm. pretty heavily pressured pressured elk. So 
it, and it was all high elevation. The wilderness area that I primarily operate in, it's not like the most rugged uh, wilderness area in Colorado or the West by any means, but it's still pretty rugged and high elevation. So I guess what I'm getting at is all the non-hunting com- components of these hunts are not real comfortable. Even if in, mm-hmm. even if you're in wall tents at you know 10,000 feet on November 1st, it's still freezing ass cold in the mornings. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. there's a lot yep. of elements of being up there. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's a stunning experience. But for most people, it could be trying mentally. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I've guided in that country for years and still it very much so uh, did I have my mornings where I was like, dude, do I really want to do this? You know what I mean? <laughs> Why am so, I here? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, if in, in that environment, because you have kind of some like negative inputs into your, you know, physiology or whatever, or in just your psychology, um, if you don't see game in the first like couple days, yeah, it could, people can get real negative really quick. And you mm-hmm. got to break, you got to break that cycle. And, and the thing I'll say about it, um, and I need to do a video about like, you know, who you choose in your hunting group, who you choose to hunt with your buddies. Cause it's, it, I, I, I noticed it over the years, Dean, like it really depends. Like you could have three or four guys and one guy starts to sour and it just spreads. You yeah. know what I mean? It just like mm-hmm. that negativity like spreads. Yeah. And then if, but if you have a guy if you got a, like two or three buddies and they know they got one buddy that's got a tendency to do that, they'll stop it. They'll they'll say, "Dude, you need to just we got to just power through." And then 40, you know, 24 hours later, one of the guys kills a bull, they start seeing elk and then the dynamic of the hunt will change, right? And things sure. become easier. But yeah, to your point, stretches of, you know, just lack of seeing game. Yeah, that's that's for sure like the biggest I mean, that's the biggest hurdle right off the bat. And, and I, and I'll, I'll, I mean, I'll be totally honest. That was, I, if we were going into hunts, like I had three or four guides and, and maybe I was guiding in a camp. If we were going into a hunt and we had just got off of guiding a hunt that was really tough, it's really hard for guides. Cause they know they're like, mm-hmm. man, we have got to get these guys into some elk because like, we're starting to get ground down. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I don't think it's like unique to people who are new to the mountains. It's, you know, you have to get over that, that kind of dry spell. And that's, I mean, you know, I'm trying to think, uh, I mean, you guys have hunted before, so I'm sure you've been exposed to this. You know, you can have these dry spells, but particularly with elk, it just takes a second and all of a sudden it all goes away. You know what yeah. I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the thing, the thing that's, kind of analogous to to this that you uh, you know this concept of not seeing elk for 12 24 hours or 48 hours or something um is if you're seeing a lot of hunters i actually i just had a conversation a couple days ago uh with a guy on on a podcast and you know it's interesting people are really worried about other pressure when the hunting's slow right Mm -hmm. but when the hunting's when hunting is good, even if they're seeing hunters, it's like you don't ever hear about it. You know what yeah. I mean? And so this, it kind of all plays together in a way because other hunting pressure is really distracting also if you haven't seen game. So you can get this compounding effect when you're hunting public land. You're like, I'm just seeing other hunters. I'm not seeing elk. And that can go on for three days. And then the fourth day, 
you get into them and then all of a sudden the first three days you kind of forget about you know what right. i mean yeah i know that sorry, the, the, for, sorry the, for the long-winded answer man. no that that's that's awesome that's I, what we're here for yeah, I, I remember the, the first time I went, I barely saw my shadow. And, and yeah, I was sure. like, I, I, I'm coming back because one, to your point, it was beautiful. Uh, and two, I think you know, the mentality, at least with Travis and our other buddy, Chris, that we hunt together with is it's hunting. It's not eradicating. So we kind of already have that mindset yeah. going in that we're going to have a great time no matter what. And if we get something and harvest something, that's just icing on the cake. Right. And, and, sure. and so for us, that that at least the mental side of it, that's what keeps us motivated. Right. And, uh, yeah, and every yeah. year we go, we learn something new every single time. And then, you know, having you guys on the podcast, we pick up little nuggets. We go, okay, we got to try that next year. Let's try that next year. Sure. And, you know? And so I think the grind in my mind is once we actually take down a, a bull or a cow, whatever it is, it's going to make that harvest that much more exciting because it's taken that oh, yeah. much longer to get to it. Right. And so, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah no, it's okay. kind of like, you know, the analogy I use sometimes Dean is I almost feel sorry for, I kind of feel sorry for the, the folks that like just, they come out and on their first hunt, they get lucky. Cause they, they you know, they, <laughs> right, they you yeah. get it happen, man. Like I know guys yeah. that they, I mean, Let's take archery, elk hunting, and call. And just, and Dean, just uh, just for context, like where have you hunted elk before? Uh, only Utah. Oh, okay. Yeah. But like it, like um, like pretty easy to draw units. It's over the counter. Oh, so okay. Yeah. yeah. Like so, in the, you the you went us, basically. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. We, so you, we've you, hunted different spots there, um, and we've like I said, one hundred percent DIY. So we literally get on base maps or on X map yeah. out of thing park the car throw packs on and start yeah and start hoofing, hoofing it in sure. like seven yeah. seven eight miles in right so we don't yeah, see yeah. anybody um and, and just have a ball right yeah and you're in your rifle hunting bow oh, oh bow hunting okay mm -hmm. perfect yeah. yeah so this is like this is where i was gonna go because most folks uh with you know hunting that kind of hunt you know those kind of hunts either be colorado utah whatever archers it takes them i mean i don't know what the average is man but it takes guys working at it on average probably seven you know i don't know five to eight years to kill one that, that's well i'm i'm really glad you, you know. said that so i got three more years left before <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, i'm not saying i'm not saying it can happen it, it, you know, it can happen whenever and, and and folks that are on it you know they are you know people who are trying to progress quicker they obviously You'll they'll get there quicker, but don't be, I mean, don't be distracted. I mean, got, you know, you, like people will tell me, dude, I've been hunting, I've been archery hunting for three years and I still haven't killed one. It's like, that's, that's not normal. That, or that's not abnormal at all. Yeah. You yeah. know? Yeah. 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 And, there, and there's no reason to get discouraged by that because, you know, during that process, you learn a whole lot. And what, what I was going to say is like, I know folks that have gone on their first over the counter archery hunt, you know, they put their backpack on for a seven day backpack hunt. They got, 400 500 yards off the road and they got in the bulls bugling and they killed one just, oh just like luck you wow. know and and even in today's day where particularly in colorado that's become uh much harder to do it still happens and it's almost like these these guys get this like gambler's curse because they can't they might spend another 15 years trying to recreate that like that mm. moment that they got lucky on right off the bat. You know what mm. I mean? So, yeah. so anyways, um, yeah, yeah. A big part of going out there and doing that, you know, especially 
I, I could be wrong, but I would think more for archery as well because you have to get a lot closer. And it seems like you'd have to trek a lot further distances. But um, one of the things, too, is just the physicality of it actually throwing the pack on. They're doing seven, eight miles a day or something like that to go out there where sure. the elk exist. Um, I, I watched one of your videos and you were talking about how that's like one of the first things you see people start to wane from just like that physicality of it. So uh, what are your recommendations for people going out there and doing some of their first elk hunts? Uh, or maybe what do you do to train to, to make sure that you're in good enough shape to, to do that? Yeah, so... So, you know, like the, I guess there's two parts of your, your question, Travis, like the, the training and prep component of it. And then, um, maybe some, some tactics on like the first 48 hours, particularly for talk about backpack hunting. A lot of guys will toast themselves backpack hunting just, just because when they, they were planning, they, they had way broader, um, you know, expectations of what they could physically do. They, they didn't even, you know, your first, your first few hunts, you really don't even know what the country looks like relative to a, a topo map. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, so you got to get a feel for that and really know what you're getting yourself into. But, but on the training component of it, like the pre, the, you know, the pre-preparation, I kind of have a, I guess, a, I, I don't have like a workout that I prescribe to people or tell people, you know, to do something specific, there's, there's two components of it that particularly when I was guiding, I found that help help me. And that's it. If I did something that strengthened my core, right? Like, I mean, I, I've, I'm, I'm lucky Travis. I've always been skinny. I don't, I don't know why, like metabolism or whatever, mm -hmm. but there's times where I was like, like a, you know, skinny fat guy. Like kind of a little, like a skinny guy, but like a little chumpy, chumpy kind yeah. of guy. You know, little pudgy, little pudgy, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and when you're like that, that's real hard on you, particularly if you're a tall, like lengthy, scraggly guy. If you don't have a core, it really wear on you. And, and I noticed it on you know clients I had. I noticed it with my guides, whatever. So if any workout routine or training you're gonna do, I think like your core body is is something that people can way under look or yeah overlook excuse me yeah right i think that's important um and then the other obvious one is just cardio right and again like my view on that is that the problem is is i'm not a crossfitter travis but everything that i view about prepping crossfit kind of works you know <laughs> what i mean because because it's like you get the core exercises you get and you get the functional strength and then you get the cardio because you're hitting like high cardio during those types types of workouts. It just checks so, all the boxes. Yeah. It just happens to check all the boxes. I don't do it. I, I do all these things in other ways that are part of my lifestyle, but I think those are really important because I, what seems not to work is if somebody just, they walk a lot, right. Or, or even if they, even if they jog a lot, you know, they just go, you know, they go on a low key jog, like for a couple miles a day, or, or, you know, they go on a low key jog for two miles, uh, three days a week or something. I'm sure that's good for you, but I don't know how much it applies, uh, to some of this type of hunting. Um, or, or I'm sure it helps, but I think, you know, learn, you know, getting exposed to that, you know, that high intensity and getting your heart rate way up and then bringing it back down. I personally think that that's helped me a lot is to, you know, to, to do that type of cardio. So those are the two things that I recommend. I don't have, 
I don't, like I said, I don't prescribe like gym workouts because that's not how I do it. I can tell you one observation that I talk about this a little bit in a video on my YouTube channel. One observation that I found is that probably the sturdiest clients that I ever guided, they, they were very passionate about some, something else physical in their life. They were like world-class tennis players. They were world-class, you know, jujitsu guys or, you know, a, a thousand different things, swimmers, any of that stuff. And I think it was just that, you know, they maintained a certain level of body condition conditioning that that worked with with hunting. So does that kind of answer your question, man? I, I wish I wish yeah. I had like I wish I had a document to sell <laughs> to sell everybody for nineteen ninety nine. Oh man! Like, did, like so you're doing it wrong, Cliff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The the problem is, it's just you know, in in part of it, Travis is. I think a lot of those prescribed workouts, people do them for like a month and then they quit. I think yeah. I think. I think all this, all these, all this stuff that people sell, you know, now there's like a little niche business to, to do like workout stuff for people preparing for hunts. I think mm-hmm. all of it works. It's a matter that most people won't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is not fun. And, and I like the idea that you're talking about too, about you just functionally work this into your life, you know, especially if you're, uh, you know, like I said, living a little bit more of a life. If you're one of these people that out there, you're chopping wood, you're doing stuff, you have to yeah. chores around and maintaining the land, doing all that stuff. You know, if you've got animals and stuff, maintaining all that itself is kind of a work. I mean, Dean was like sure. chasing goats around the yard earlier, you know, <laughs> yeah. so that's a hell of a work. Yeah. <laughs> Those little dudes yeah. are fast too, man. I'm yeah. Telling you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, Dean, well, Dean, in the few years that you've been at it, you know, like getting into it, have you noticed or have you done something that works? I'm, I'm kind of curious. So I am a big mountain tough homer. And so okay. I, I, I follow their program. Um, and, and it's from when I started to now it 100% helps, but I think the bigger component of that kind of to your point is what I took away from what you just said was that anybody that has something else in their life, it's almost the mental toughness of it. Like sure. no matter what, what is in front of me, I'm mentally tough to accomplish it versus somebody that doesn't have that something else in their life. Right. Right. You know? And so I think that's, that's a bigger component to it. And I think part of the mental tough program or the mountain tough program um, is the mental aspect of it. Yeah. yeah. So I think if it gets in your head, which kind of goes back to the original question, if it gets in your head, you're already almost defeated before yeah, yeah. you've accomplished what you yeah. wanted right it's like that physicality yeah. prepares you for that mental aspect of it as well because right. you're like okay i'm used to suffering you know what was the the thing that was written yeah, on yeah. the gym wall it's like get, get used to be, or get comfortable get, being get, uncomfortable yeah yeah, exactly. yeah oh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Dude, i i mean i think you nailed it dean boy and you too travis like because i can tell you uh i i i hired a ton of guides over my years of of outfitting and i started to realize like if i found a guide who was a like a like a real um you know he was really into wrestling in high school in like the 90s you know back when they used to put those poor kids through hell <laughs> they were good guides because they, they're right. like they they you know they were used to like just hitting the wall yeah. right and like you know just all you know those kids have to go through hardship i wasn't a wrestler in high school i had buddies who were but i noticed that any guide i had who was a high school wrestler like in the early 2000s, 90s, who had to go through some some hardship, mm-hmm. they they kind of built. They have like a, a little callus of mental toughness built up. <laughs> right. <in them. laughs> well, it is, and and I think even even last year was a great example when we had went in, and it took us 
four hours to go three and a half miles because you know, yeah, the terrain true. was just terrible. And then you got 60 pounds on your back. And I think if you're not kind of going into it with that mental preparation, to your point there, you would have just forget it. We're just going to base camp here. Like I'm done. Like I'm, I'm tired. Yeah. My back hurts. My feet are sore, whatever. And you give up. And, and, uh, and so I think that is a, a big component, you know, of it. And then of course, yeah, yeah. you know, you're with your buddies and you're giving each other shit. So it's like, they got, I got 20 years on, on Chris and Travis. Right. And so I'm like, dude, I'm the old guy, like cut me some <laughs> slack. Right. Like, <laughs> you know? yeah, 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 yeah. but, and, and then coming from flatland to altitude, you know, sure. that, also kind of bears a little bit on that that physical side of it so yeah uh, and, and kind of on the, the latter part of travis's original question um between the altitude and then just your expectations of how far you're going to go into camp and all that i i always thought like the you know the little things just like pacing yourself making sure you stay hydrated making sure you consume enough calories that sort of stuff i mean it sounds like like those are kind of no shit type of things um but uh, but they're important to really like really think about them. Like I, I've never actually seen but anybody do this, but at times I've almost wanted to tell people like, you know, when you're hiking in with a backpack, like it's if you had a timer that told you every hour to eat or every hour to drink or whatever, it's not a bad idea because I feel like a lot of guys will grind them into this into a mental state and just forget to eat, forget to drink. And, and mm -hmm. it puts them in a rough spot right off the bat. Yeah. Actually, that's a perfect segue too. I was going to ask you. So, you know, I was commenting up, I loved your video about the, the pemmican and I want to see when oh, you yeah. tested that, yeah. how did, how did that do for you? And uh, did you prefer fruit and uh, the fruit and berries in there or just the, just the meat and fat? Yeah. Yeah. So have you, have you made it Travis or consumed it? Uh, I've never had it, but I, I, I make my own jerky and stuff and I pretty much have it just like plain jerky with just fat. I leave the fat in there. Cause I think it sweetens it up because it's yeah. flavor and stuff. But, so. but you're on you, but you're in your day-to-day -day life. You're on like a high fat diet. A yeah. High, I, like, I, yeah. Basically kind of a modified carnivore ketoboard diet, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, and the reason I asked, man, is like, I'm used to eating. I'm used I have a similar diet to you. So I'm used to the fat. And I, I have found, um, I think I actually posted up a short video of it. Like my mother, she hates pemmican because of the fat. Like she, oh, she yeah. finds it absolutely repulsive. And I think most people who maybe have a little bit more, uh, you know, diet that's uh, a little bit all in, more all-inclusive, they're going to be, they're going to be, yeah, they're going to be turned off by that fat. Um, that For me, I'm not turned off by it at all because like, you know, if I eat a ribeye, I'm going to like eat all the chunks of fat. Mm -hmm. Most people find that disgusting. So, but mm -hmm. it, you know, so that's the one caveat with the pemmican. So what I found is that I actually ate it as probably my primary source of diet uh, when I was in Idaho this last fall. And that was a, that hunt was uh, eight or eight or nine days. I can't remember how long we were at it, but the whole time wasn't backpacking. We, we did a little backpacking and then we did a lot of, a lot of long day, day hikes out of a cabin. So it was kind of a mixed exposure to it, I, but I didn't have any problem with it in terms of like wrecking my digestive system, my energy or anything like that. But I think a big part of that, at least for me personally, Travis is it didn't, I wasn't changing what I really wasn't changing the dynamics of my diet from what I eat at home to when I was backpacking mm -hmm. with like when I would, what 
I don't have good. I wish I, yeah, there's all these different things when I was guiding a ton. I wish I would have like analyzed when I had the data set in front of me, but I would all like, if I was going to guide a seven day sheep hunt guaranteed that within the first 72 hours, I was going to have a crazy disrupted digestive system. Cause I would go straight to mountain house and I ate a lot of like ramen noodles because I, I would lose, I would, I would, I, there was a period of time when I was guide man, I would lose like 10 pounds a hunt. And for 160 wow. pound guys, that's a lot. guy like wow. that's like a major issue. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, like it was like, I had like, I would get really screwed up after a month, like with what, you know, or you, you know, you're like wearing your mm -hmm. body out um, just by you're, you're not doing a good job taking care of yourself. So for me, I would shift to these, you know, mountain house diets, ramen noodles, all this crap. And I would get sick, not, not like throwing up, but I would be, you know, less functioning because I was, I was changing diet. Now, I don't know if that's what, from what I was actually consuming or if it was mainly from the actual change, but mm -hmm. it was one of those. Cause I would always get, get messed <clears throat> up and I, you know, you learn to live with it, but it, it, well, I say I learned to live with it, but I also learned how to just get fit pack other things that i would guaranteed eat you know mm -hmm. what i mean because i just liked them so uh, sorry man i probably got a little off track no you're good no, no that's that's perfect because like i say that's one thing that's uh going on my adventure doing the carnivore diet here and everything and uh i, I posted just a couple of videos of it recently and it's like channels and from what it was been blowing up just because people love carnivore stuff oh right cool now. but uh you know it, it's uh it's been really interesting because like you say like I was always worried. It's like, okay, like I need more carbohydrates. When I first started the diet, I was carrying like, uh, whenever I go to the gym and stuff to work out, I was carrying like divinity with me. It's like egg whites, corn syrup and sugar, right? And it was something easy, easy to digest. Didn't mess me up too bad. Then I could sure. go to the gym harder, you know, but once I stuck with it and I just kept going, I went to zero carbs and or, or very, 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 as everyone saw, I still have like honey in my coffee or something like that, you know, but then go into a high fat diet. Like I got to the point where it's like, I didn't even, I don't need that anymore. I'm just going continuously kind of fat adapted and it right. made that a lot easier but i know like I say going out in the mountains and, and all that and, and packing and hiking and all that stuff is a lot more strenuous so i was that was my big thing is like did you have enough energy or did you feel like whenever you're on a more omnivorous diet that you were had more reserves or and did you notice a difference you know yeah man i don't i don't I, honestly i i don't notice a difference um I notice I notice a bigger difference for me personally just on intake. So if I have, you know, if I have like, uh, you know, let's take the pemmican deal. If I'm doing that, or if I have the, you know, a more traditional kind of backpacking diet, my biggest problem for me, and I notice this amongst my guides too, and and, and I'm not sure. It, it some people can relate, some people can't. It was just forgetting to consume enough calories. That, that's that's most of my fluctuation in energy was due to that and i found that it's hard to actually like people there's some people that seem to be able to be like oh you know you're back at your everybody's back in their little backpack uh tent you know we're all kind of sitting there bullshitting and we're talking and for some guys are like oh we never stopped at eight today some people can sit right there at 10 o'clock at night and consume 2500 calories I, I could never do that. You know what I mean? I could never mm -hmm. catch up. And that would always cause me, I felt like that's where I'd get the energy roller coaster, but like the pemmican thing or, or whatever, as long as like, I would eat what's in my bag and it sounds super basic, 
you know, Travis, but I pack a bag in the morning in my backpack. I always put it in an outer pouch so I can get to it easily. And I pretty much mentally monitor that I go through that bag every day. It is, it's a very rare, rare circumstance now that I will end up with much food in that bag at the end of the day, just because it's kind of like my mental way of keeping track of it. Like I yeah. reach in there and I can see that I'm working through that. Yeah. Sometimes like if you, you know, you kill something midday and time goes by, yeah, I'll still end up with more food at the end and then I can try to catch up. But that that's the way I deal with it. I think it's one of the things I found too is, is, and I tell guys that are getting ready to go is to make sure you eat whatever you're going to eat up there to your point, the mountain house, I always tell them, look, get a couple bags, make sure you can tolerate it because you sure. don't want to find out you can't tolerate it when you have nothing else to eat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, know? you, you mean, you, you know? mean like even from a taste perspective? Correct. Yeah. Oh I mean, yeah. Can, can, your, can your body handle it? Do you hate it? You know, cause that, yeah. that will ruin your day. If you get up there and like get to your point, you're seven days in and day two, you're like, I don't like anything yeah, that yeah. I packed. Like this is just terrible. And then then it's in your head. <laughs> yeah, I, I would, so. you know, Dean, I would go as far as to say that not only do you, do you need to be able to tolerate it from a taste perspective, you need to really like it. Yeah. You, you yeah. Know, I mean, if you're eating it at home and you're not like, man, this stuff's good yet, you, you need to probably figure out what you really like, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And back to Travis's original question about the pimmican thing is I liked it, man. I was eating it at home for weeks you know, yeah. and going through it. So I liked it. I, I kind of, in a way, like I look forward to eating it. I think for whatever food you're eating, the best bet is like looking forward to having it in your pack. The old, an old one for me, and I'm sure it's got, it's got some issues from like a health, health standpoint, but I used to eat a ton of oysters. Like I loved oysters mm. and, and I knew they're in my pack and I would be like, I would look forward to eating them every day. So mm. it worked, you know? Yeah. Nice. Interesting. Do you ever uh, go fishing and catch and cook while you're out there? Or? Yeah. Like you mean like high country lake stuff and stuff, yeah, you know, yeah. stuff like that. Brook trout stuff. You know, I, so we, we did a little bit of that, but particularly during archery season, um, the, I guess the short answer is we did a little bit of it, but for the most part, we focused on elk hunting. You yeah. know what I mean? It, and it's funny. rely on. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. You mean from like a calorie standpoint or so? Yeah. I wouldn't even, Yeah. I, I wouldn't even factor it in from a fun perspective. If you're a fisherman, you know, there's, there's all over the place. There's, there's like, you know, kind of world-class trout fishing all over these wilderness areas in Colorado. Um, I, I think, and I, it's the reason I'm kind of like bogged down by the question a little bit is in some ways I wish I would have done more of that but we would get so focused on elk hunting i cannot tell you how many fly rods that i've packed in on mules and horses like hundreds over the years that never got used yeah and i'm not i'm not i'm not saying that it's not a great opportunity i'm just saying like when i look at the data set what actually happened is you got you know folks just get they get they get so focused on elk hunting and then when they're not elk hunting they're tired and they try to get in there trying to rest, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, so that's, that, that's actually awesome. Um, because that would, it's a perfect question is, is what would you tell people that are out there when they have the downtime looking back that you should say, look, when you have your downtime, you're not seeing anything, nothing's bugling, 
you, what would you tell them to do? Just take in the scenery, take some pictures, fly fish, take a nap. Like how, how would you tell somebody to really take in that whole experience? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that it, it, to some extent it depends on, so if you're, if you're a poor, what I would call like a poor camper, and I say this with affection because my entire <laughs> life I have been like a poor camper. And this is a guy, this is a guy who's like living in wall tents like a hundred plus days a year. And I'm not a great camper. Like I don't sleep as good. I don't, you know, as I do at home, all that stuff. If you fall into that category, I would don't you don't shun like midday naps. You know what I mean? I think it's valuable to to make sure you're rested. Now, if you're somebody who sleeps real well camping, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about it too much. I, so what I would say is that you can enjoy the, you know, the other things, you know, like the, the fishing, that sort of thing. But the other thing I would, I would say is that I spent a lot of time guiding when it was a slow time and I knew that, you know, it was warm or whatever. And I knew the elk were bedded down somewhere. I was, I'm always some someone to sit somewhere where I can glass e- mm. even if, even if the glassing is like miserable like we're looking across like I'm looking in like a tight you know in, in a in a in a tight drainage and I'm looking just into a wall of timber I like to yeah. just sit somewhere yeah. where I can look because yeah. I cannot Perfective. tell you I cannot tell you like particularly heavily pressured elk like Colorado I in my mind it's like notorious for this when there's a lot of hunters around yeah, sometimes elk will dissipate and they'll go other places, but a lot of times they just they just suck up really tight mm. into little small spots. And and then those in that you know, I'll be looking at a, tim- a wall of timber, you know, eating my lunch, maybe resting a little bit, you know, just burning, a, you know, two or three hours. And just like look at my binoculars and my tripod, and there's I just see like I just see the back of a cow. And then mm. all of a sudden it changes the dynamic of the hunt because it's like look you know, there's a group of elk that have been hiding right here, you know, a half mile from camp in it's low. I mean, it's low probability. You can't just spend every day glass and timber because it's not a great use of your time, particularly the prime time, but it's not a bad use of your casual time. You know, I, there's, I've killed a lot of elk with people over the years because I do that. So it's another thing you can, you can do. Yeah, we ran into that uh, last year when we got up, you know, twelve thousand feet, and it was exactly that. We were we were glassing down. It just literally was so thick, yeah, that we were just like, we're we're not going to see anything up here. But yeah. but we were in that mindset of, but look how unbelievably beautiful this whole scenery is. You know, like oh, yeah. the, or the yeah, clouds yeah. and right, and so that was kind of our, our way of kind of passing the time was, all right, you know what? So we're not seeing any elk, but look at like people that don't come out here can't appreciate what this, how, how beautiful this area is, you know, and yeah, how many yeah. people have, have actually seen this. So he's ended up in for 30 minutes, taking pictures, right. And selfies, yeah. the mountains, you know, it's funny. It's funny you say that Dean, cause I think it's a, like, it's a great mental thing to do exactly what you're describing elk hunting because it to just take a moment and and enjoy what you're experiencing because like even in super tough hunts man you're still one of the one out of whatever 
a, you know, hundred thousand people on this planet that get to experience that kind of thing. You know right. what I mean? Right. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, for me personally, man, it just boosts like the feel of the hunt because there's kind of like this gratitude about enjoying it's in, enjoying it. It's funny. Actually this morning I was, I was lobster, lobster diving. I'm, I'm in the Caribbean right now, but, oh, nice. um, and, and I was out with a guy who dives a lot here and, and I, and I enjoy diving, but, um, we're diving and he's like, he's like, Cliff, dude, I'm sorry, man. Cause the visibility wasn't that good. You know, just, we couldn't see that much in the ocean and I didn't do it on purpose, but I was like, his name is Voss. I was like, Voss, this is awesome, man. Like, yeah, <laughs> I, you know, like this is, I don't get to see like Caribbean reef all the time. And if we go, you know, we're seeing all these short lobsters that weren't legal yet. And he's like, you know, he, and he's like bummed about it. I'm like, dude, I just seeing lobsters is totally right. awesome. Right. And, and right. I, <laughs> I noticed it, it got like, it got me, you know, a better attitude about it, but it's, it's, a, it's, um, you know, it's contagious because he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. So yeah. he died for yeah. another hour. So right. I, dude, I think it's a great mental exercise, Dean, what what you're talking about. And, and dude, I'll tell you, it like guides, guides would always notice that when I was guiding or if, uh, you know, my guys that work for me would say that if you're guiding a guy and I hate to say it, but if a guy doesn't say in the, you know, the first two or three days to guide him, he doesn't say like, dude, this country is beautiful. And now, now granted, most of these areas are stunning. So there's right. that component. Of it. But if the guy doesn't acknowledge that usually verbally in the first, you know, 48 hours, he, he's not that fun to guide. And, mm-hmm. and honestly, the success rate goes way down and the, um, the uh, chances of them quitting early goes way up. If you have a guy that acknowledges like the how beautiful and the opportunity to be there it to me i mean i don't have the data in front of me but i can almost guarantee you it correlates with a higher chance of success i i believe that uh yeah. there's no doubt it, it, it's the it, like i said it's the mental side of it and and to your point it's the attitude side of it i mean it, it, it is what you make of it right yeah and and uh i think it's a that's important i noticed that when I went to Kansas on a duck hunt earlier this year and the guy was really bad. He's like, Oh my God, I'm, I'm so sorry. Like, you know, we didn't get a shot off the first day. And we're like, dude, listen, we saw yeah. so many geese fly over. Like we learned so much about the, where they're, they're coming in at like tomorrow is going to be awesome. Right. Cause now we know yeah. where we're going. Like, you know, don't, don't sweat it. Let's go get some good dinner and whatever. And the next day we hammered him and had a yeah, great yeah, time. Yeah, right. Sure. But, yeah. but we could tell he was feeling bad as from a guide standpoint, like, dude, I'm so sorry. I couldn't, I couldn't call him in. I don't know what the, what was going on. We're like, don't sweat it, man. Like we're having a yeah. ball. We'll lay in mud all day long, dude. This is yeah, it's sure. better than being in the office. I can guarantee yeah, yeah. that. <laughs> like, so. That was uh, yeah. my granddad always told me, he's like, well, that's why they call it hunting and not shooting is it doesn't mean you're going to go out there and to get success. Yeah. But again, you can take the memories, you can take the mental pictures, you can enjoy this and just enjoy the quiet sometimes, you know, and yeah. it's, like, it's getting harder to do for me now. I got like tinnitus in this year. So I'm always hearing, uh, <laughs> but other than that, other than that, you know, it's, it's like, you know, it's great to take in that silence because you just don't get to hear that, man. It's amazing. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, one of the other things I was going to ask you is, is um, again, kind of learning this over the past five years, where's your stance on specifically elk when it comes to calling not calling do do you are you on the on the the side of you bugle as much as you possibly can or are you on the other side like blow once and just shut up and see what happens yeah so 
I, I guess it's, you know, to some extent, it's situation by situation, you know, area by area, you know, what the elk are doing, all of that. If I was going to say like some pretty consistent advice over, you know, over all variables and all conditions, I believe that the, the highest probability of calling elk in is to maybe locate them, you know, or, you know, you could locate them by glassing them up. You can locate bugle them. You can hear cows moving through the timber, talking to their calves. All of those to me are locating elk from the moment of locating them to actually setting up on them. The closer you can get your chances of killing them go way up. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And, and I always would that gap between locating them and getting close to them before I like really, you know, tried to set up on them, the shorter that, you know, the shorter that gap was and the less I had to relocate them, the better off I was. Mm. It, 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 does that make sense, Dean? Mm -hmm. yeah. And, and yeah. So this, I ran into this a lot and I, and I saw it enough that it be, it became something and I, I probably did it enough, enough too became an issue that i realized that you get a bull to bugle like you can take the strategy like a like a cory jacob jacobson approach mm -hmm. that you're are, are you familiar with like mm -hmm. his style yeah right so you're covering a lot of ground you're trying to find the bull that's gonna you know that's that's ready to call in that day that's you know the synopsis of it and so you're covering a lot of ground you're locate bugling and then you go from there if you do that you know, and I think that's a valid approach in a lot of ways in a lot of areas. If you do that, once you get the bull located, then, you know, getting close enough to him and, and setting up to, you know, either just, you know, call him in just straight with a bugle like Corey does a lot. Or mm -hmm. if you want to do, you know, other styles of calling, the worst thing you can do is hear him know where he's at, get him to get him to bugle at you. And then you move 300 yards closer to him and you just want to hear him bugle again. And this, this is the nature of a lot of people. And I resist the urge all the time. It's like, I just want to make sure he's there. I just want to make sure he's there. It's like, no, you don't want to make sure he's there. You want to bugle so you can hear him bugle again. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. And there's the, the thing is, is that I understand why people want to do that, but there's a big negative consequence to that in, in my mind. And that's that I noticed over time, elk, they like when they hear you and I think some extent smell you also, but in this case, we're talking about hearing, they don't know that you're in the general area. Like when I hear, hmm. when I hear my kids yelling in my house, I know they're generally in a part of the house An elk knows, like it would know that my daughter is sitting on the left side of her bed you know oh, wow exactly wow. you know they know exactly wow. where you're out so if you bugle to them it, when you want you know when you get closer if you get unlucky and there's less cover now where you're bugling yeah the, the bull did slightly move he's gonna know and his cows are gonna know like the exact tree you're next to and they're gonna look they're gonna look you know a, you know a couple of cows might try to work and get wind to that or something like they know exactly where you're at and so you have to be really, you have to be very careful about getting through that gap and, you know, but, you know, getting, and then, you know, to the point of getting close enough to, to call in about trying to relocate them and, and calling them during the journey. I would say that's like the biggest mistake I saw. Mm. And, you know, I had it happen actually twice. And I remember what, what I used to do 
is and it, I mean everybody does this and it's, it's not a bad thing but like we would during a slow period of time you know Dean like you're talking about middle of the day you know no there's nothing going on all the elk are bedded just kind of screw it around you're eating lunch and this is always when hunters groups of hunters or guides and clients will start playing with their calls they're like oh right. you know <laughs> you know let me you know yeah, like you know they're gonna you're gonna hundred percent yeah yeah hundred percent yeah, fit around with a new, a different version of the diet, whatever, right? Yeah. So you're making little cow calls, little cow yeah. calls, stuff yeah. like that. Twice I had this situation where we were sitting next to a tree, and I, in see, like when you when you have horses and stuff, and you're guiding hunters, and, and you know an area, you kind of like have lunch at the same spots because there's good trees that tie up the horses. You can glass at least you got these spots, right? So, um. We were doing that and then we moved off to start hunting in the afternoon and then I glass back to where I had, where we ate lunch and literally like where we were sitting neck, like the tree I had my back on, there's a bull standing there. Wow. He's not, he's not a hundred yards to the right looking. He's not, you know, he's not, you know, 300 feet below looking. He's at the tree that we were at. He's you know what I mean? You. Wow. So, so they know exactly where you're at. And I, you know, you just have to keep that in mind that every time you give away that, that spot, you're, you're exposing yourself to a little risk that they're like, Hey, where's the elk, you know? Mm. Um, right. So and that, you're that's my, them, that's my biggest general advice. And you're locating them early in the morning then, or at night, are you, are you, are you bugling at night to locate them for the next morning? Yeah. So in terms of, in to me, if you're going to locate bugle, the best time to do it, well, honestly, the best time to do it is like, you know, two hours after dark or two hours before right. dark. Okay. Like if you got, if you got elk that will not talk, if you're close enough to them at four in the morning and you bugle, they'll, they'll generally bugle. Like okay. some, of, some of these like hard hunted elk that people tell you like, man, I've been hunting this country for two weeks straight and I haven't heard a bugle. If you're close enough at night and you bugle, a lot of times you can get them to fire off, you know, but in some ways, you know, it's not always the most practical way to do it. Most of the locate bugling that I've done over the years is, is in the morning, you know, at, you know, right at, you know, right at dawn, that sort of thing. Um, Usually at the nighttime, they're setting up for the night. And so you could be like, okay, well now we know which direction we need to head when we get up in the morning. Is it going to kind of that thing or. Yeah, well, not yeah. A lot of times at night, you'll just you'll know where they're feeding. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And then you kind of you can figure out where they're, um, you know, where they're bedding related to that or or whatever. It just it like again, that all kind of depends on how heavily hunted they are. You know, because mm-hmm. I mean, and if they're doing, you know, if they're if they're really sticking to a pattern, they haven't been screwed with. But if there's other guys in them in like these other, you know, in these these heavily hunted areas. Like these elk will move at night, you know, mm. they'll feed, they'll feed in one meadow and you think, oh, well, they're going to bed, you know, they're bedding in that timber right there. They got to be. And well, it turns out at night, they, you know, they, they rolled a mile, you know, they went and fed a little bit somewhere else and bedded, you know, two, you know, a mile and a half, two miles away. It, it, mm. You know, that it's an extreme case, but it can happen, you know? Yeah. And I've also heard too, that, that hunting them is different than deer in that, you don't have to necessarily be as quiet or have scent block or, you know, is that in your experience, this true, or is that a false statement? 
So I, w- I would say on the quiet, on the quiet side of thing, things, I, I would tend to agree with that. On the scent thing, I disagree, man. They're, they are brutal on, on mm. scent. Uh, heavily hunted ones are. Um, gotcha. you, you know, that, that's, that, I mean, that's at least from my experience. They, I mean, they will not tolerate, you know, I had a lot of whitetail hunters as clients. And a lot of them would say they're real similar to whitetail. I can't, you know, I, I'm not a big whitetail hunter, so I don't know. Um, but in my experience, they're real sensitive to smell. On the on the noise, on the noise thing, you know what I think? I think elk, even if they've been hunted a lot, particularly in September, when they hear when they hear something cracking or whatever, their first assumption is not a human. Their first assumption is it's an elk. Mm. You know what I mean? So maybe that's what they mean by that. Then they, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of, you know, there, there's like countless stories and I've, you know, I have those two, you know, guys set up camp and they start cracking trees, you know, there, there's no good firewood. So they start going up to these conifers and pulling off the lower branches, boom, 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 crack, 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 crack. And then 10 minutes later, they look in the timber and there's a bull there that a bull thinks it's a, he thinks it's a bull raking or something. Mm. You know, they, they're they're used to you know when they move around they make a fair amount of noise too so mm. i i think they're i don't know that they're more forgiving i think particularly when they're rutting they're they're just like they're hopeful it's another elk maybe you know right right i think with a lot of animals i would assume that they're because i know like white tails uh one thing i've seen is they've kind of got like a hierarchy of their senses so like you know their their sense of smell is like probably the number one thing like it's the strongest sense and they rely on that really heavily and then i think their hearing is next because like you said there's with hearing there could be a lot of curiosity there but like say if they're especially if they're heavily hunted well in this case like i say i'm more used to deer uh but like i say they they know what a hunter or they know what a human smells like they know kind of what carries along sure. with them you know but then whenever it comes to their sight because that's probably the easiest way to fool them because unless they feel like say i know with whitetails usually if you're hiding behind something or pretty close to something they can be looking right at you and they're like uh, is it moving no, no, no. All right, <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. I'm good. I'm good. I'm yeah. good. I'm gonna continue feeding, you know. Yeah. And I've yeah. heard I've heard it with elk. They say you should stand in front of the tree versus whitetail. You would want to be behind the tree. I don't know. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, the answer to that I don't really know. I will tell you that, you know, along the the uh, um, the theory you're putting out there, I would say that elk, if they're questioning what they see. Or questioning what they hear, or whatever they're gonna they're gonna move to India. Mm-hmm. Pretty like 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 the most obvious example, like uh, uh, to your original question, Dean, like um, on archery setups or call-in setups. If you set up in a way that a bull comes to you, like well, the perfect example is like we set up on a like elk are rutting right outside of a meadow, right? And so we know where they're at in the meadows, whatever, like. 300 yards across right and we make the mistake of setting up on this side of the meadow right and and we start calling to the bull and he just he starts beelining to us when he hits the edge of that meadow and he doesn't see a cow in that meadow he's gonna walk that timber line and yeah. wind you and get your wind every time you know every time they get into an open spot where they should see a cow that's calling to him or a bull that's calling to him if they're like, hmm, this is weird, they start moving to wind. Mm. And, and, a, and a lot of guys, a lot of guys' response to that is like, well, I'm always going to set up where I'm going to get them on the half moon, right? I'm going to get them when they start to move to the wind. 
it, the best way to do it is always set up your your call in setups so um, by the time they're doing that, you can kill them. Mm. You know mm. what I mean? That's yeah. that's your best bet. Like the best bet is to kill those elk before they get to the point where they can they can see it. I mean, it's not it's easy to say that, but that mm. that if you have that mindset, you'll you'll get a lot more into archery range because if they get somewhere where they think they should see and they don't, they start using their nose. Yeah. Are are cows? Do they react the same as bulls or bulls? Are they in general a, a more hypersensitive to their surroundings? Yeah. So I would say that cat, like particularly in these over the counter units mm -hmm. and, you know, stuff like that that gets hunted a lot, the cows are way smarter, like a okay. like hundredfold. And, and it's because they've been through a bunch of hunting seasons. You know, like in most of my primary areas where I outfitted, if you killed a four and a half year old bull, it was a big bull. You know, four and a half, five year old, five year old bull. Those were like the upper chunk of the the stuff. Like when you see, when you see a lot of these over the counter bulls, these five by five, these like raghorns, clean five by fives, small six by sixes. Those elk are all under five and a half years old. You know, mm -hmm. they're you know three. You know, a lot like a lot of areas. These like uh, just you know these six by sixes. A lot of them are three and a half year old bulls, so they haven't lived that uh -oh. long. But they, they can have cows with them that are 12 years old. And, and, wow. and the thing about it is like a lot of these areas, you know, one, obviously they're just exposed to the, the um, you know, they're just exposed to the hunting pressure from the guys, the, from the hunters hunting bulls. But all these cows are directly hunted a lot, right? So, mm. you know, I mean, in, Col in Colorado, a lot, you know, uh, for years, the vast majority of the tags were either sex. So a lot of these cows, not only had they been hunted, they'd had arrows shot at them. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. You know, and then, the, and then, yeah. and then uh, in the wintertime, a lot of cows get hunted separate from the bulls, you know, a lot of areas, you know, because there's a lot of late season cow hunts. So they, they totally know what's up and they've had way more time at it than the bulls. Wow. Interesting. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of counterintuitive. Yeah, you know, you know yeah. what I mean. Yeah, but. yeah. And uh, did you do any any uh, guided bear hunts at all, or, or was you strictly uh, you did bear too? Yeah, so I we got in we got heavy into fall spot and stock bear hunting, but the last like three or four years, uh, you know, so like 2017 to 2020, and then I did and then I did a lot of uh, um, spring bear hunting in British Columbia that all before COVID, all before covid gotcha mm. yeah. are you guys bear hunters uh we haven't we actually were oh, yeah. literally talking about doing it in 2024 so oh, okay we're, cool. we're, and never been so we're going to be three yahoos from texas trying to figure it out yeah, that's all right <laughs> you know? yeah. Fun. So, yeah i think I've it's heard. fun man yeah they're I've cool heard. they're way they're really cool animals they're you know they have a they're I, and I mean it like in a very positive way. They're, they're a little more, they're, you know, they're a human-like animal. Like they interact mm -hmm. with their cubs a certain way when you're watching them. You know, yeah. they they work food with their hands. It's just cool. They're really cool to observe. And, you know, hunt, hunting them is, to me, bear hunting is not so much about interaction with the animal as it is about um, like really learning what they eat, you know, learning how they're moving around, that sort of thing. I, I don't in my experience with them, they're not the keenest animal. They're, they don't have, you know, they're not going to, 
they're not as hard to sneak up on as a big mule deer or an mm-hmm. elk or something like that. Once you kind of understand their, you know, what they're trying to accomplish in life, you, you can become pretty proficient at it, you know? Hmm. Yeah. It sounds like one of those things with bear hunting is too, is just kind of like this, uh, kind of like two apex predators coming out and meeting in the wild kind of thing. It seems like a lot of people get really jazzed up for, for hunting them because of that. And like oh, said, for they're just, yeah, they're, yeah, just, yeah. they're just amazing animals too, man. Like you said, scary, but I, uh, amazing. Yeah. yeah, they're cool. I mean, yeah, that's the thing, right? Is that, I mean, people, people like poo poo, even black bears. And I can, I mean, to this day, I mean, I don't, I don't know how many black bear hunts I've guided. I bet it's probably like 25, 30 or something like that. But to this day, when I walk up on one and I see its claws, I'm like, yeah, they say, you know, they say they're not that dangerous, but I sure as hell wouldn't want to fight no, one. Yeah. You know, right, right. Don't, don't, don't fall asleep with the Snickers in your yeah, pocket. Yeah. <laughs> they're neat animals. Yeah. though. Yeah. yeah. We're looking forward to it. We'll have to, we'll be doing a lot of studying over the next year on, on how to, figure that out but it'll, yeah it'll you're gonna hunt, hunt them in the spring or the fall i think it was spring mm-hmm. is what we're saying oh, okay about. yeah and uh i think our buddy was telling us that, i guess it was in idaho that is that you can get over yeah. the counter i think yeah. or something so that's mm-hmm. what we're looking at yeah so. and they have they have they have some pretty cool areas to to hunt too you know yeah. you guys yeah. you guys are texans yeah yeah i'm yeah. down south of houston and dean's up near austin so oh, okay yeah so yeah, yeah. we can we can hammer a bunch of pigs and, and whitetail, but you know, we brought right. up yeah, all the sure. other stuff, but an axis, axis deer is always yeah. good. But you figure if you can, if you can hit an axis with a, with a, with a bow, you can pretty much shoot anything with a bow. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the, you know, it, it's funny you say that Dean, cause you know what I, uh, um, what's lacking a lot of uh, people that they, they only do Western hunting, you know, like these elk hunts or deer hunts or whatever, they don't get a whole lot of repetition for, I mean, I'm specifically with archers. They don't get a whole lot of repetition just with, I mean, just with killing stuff, you know what I mean? Cause they just don't get as much exposure like you guys do down in Texas. I always noticed that when I was guiding the Texan, like they, you know, some of them may not be as comfortable with the weather. You know, like if I got a guy from Wisconsin in the camp and a, and a Texan or a Californian, the guy from Wisconsin is going to be like, oh, snow, what snow? You know what I mean? <laughs> right. But but when you're archery hunting, you know, a Texan who who gets exposed to a lot of, you know, t- taking a lot of shots and killing a lot of animals with his bow, he's a lot more like, oh, yeah, whack. You know, it's with the other guy, you know, because you, know, you can elk hunt in the West. And, you know, you, you might, you may not get a shot on a live animal for, for years, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. You, well, can hunt, uh, you can hunt elk in Texas year round, technically, but you just got to yeah. find them. They just gotta find <laughs> yeah. Them. yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the nice thing about having pigs and axes is we can go year round. Right? Yeah. So, sure. Uh, and, you know, last year we did a, uh, we did a ram hunt down here and had a, oh, had okay. a great, a great time doing that. Mm-hmm. The three of us went out and, it was, uh, it was just, everybody said, oh, ram is terrible. Like, don't eat it. It's going to be awful. Yeah. And, and we, we had it, uh, we got an Airbnb down in San Antonio for tack and we grilled it up. It was a black Hawaiian Not bad. A, a kettle. It was unbelievably good. So I didn't know what yeah, yeah, people yeah. were talking about. I'm like, I, I don't know. You must have to prepare it like a whitetail or something because yeah. this was delicious. So, yeah. Well, well you know, bighorns, bighorns pretty good too. Yeah. 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 Yeah, we got uh, over in West Texas. You can uh hunt out that all year too, man. That's one I want to put on sure. my list. Those are awesome. Uh and then uh Neil Guy too. I don't know if you've ever eaten Neil Guy, but I've got Yeah, man. I, I have not eaten Neil Guy, but I, everybody everybody says it's awesome. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. You know, our dad, our dad, I've hunted quite a bit, mm-hmm. and uh, I've guided a bunch of those hunts. Most of the Texans I I know they won't eat them. They don't really? like them. You know, well, yeah, I, I, you know, go ahead. No, I was just say that's exactly what they told us, and I and I think the difference was, you know, when we at least I bled mine out with just regular water, ice, bled it out for three days, and then I soaked it in orange juice for three more days. Yeah, oh, okay. And, uh, I think the citrus and the sugars kind of helped a little bit with it. Uh, sure. But somebody else was was it uh, red vinaigrette? I think somebody else was telling us to, to use uh, that. Red too. red wine vinegar, yeah. Red wine vinaigrette, yeah. Oh, okay. So must be pretty good. Oh. Yeah. No, and I, I've eaten all that. I'm, I and I didn't find it like offensive. It's not my favorite game meat, but right. you know, it's edible. Really? <laughs> yeah. What 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 is what is your favorite game? Uh, you know, my favorite game meat is it probably is elk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, um, it's it, it's a good experience to, to eat elk meat because there's there's just something about it. And I like you described it to people that have never had just like elk meat or elk steaks or something like that. And it's like it just it it feels different when you eat it. Like you, I don't know. There's something about it. You just feel different after eating it. It's just that good. Uh, yeah, it's probably just, there's no science, but <laughs> yeah, probably just probably good for you. But you well, know, yeah. I. I actually really like lion too. I mean, I would, I would, I would say lion's my favorite meat, but the lion part of it is weird, you know? (laughs) And so if it weren't for that, you know, I kind of feel like that was bear too. Like any predator, I always kind of feel like, "Eh," you know, but lion's Mm -hmm. real good, but it's just kind of got that predator deal, you know? Yeah. I've heard the same thing about mountain lions. I would, I would love to go on one of those hunts, but in like, people are like, no, you don't eat it though. I was like, dude, I would totally try it. I'm I'm one of them. I would even try coyote if I, you know, just really yeah, got, sure. got frisky one day, you know. Like, depending I, I on how grew, hungry I grew you up, are, man. Yeah, right, yeah. I'm we a had, man, you know. Speaking of speaking of lion, we had uh, Kendall Jones on. Uh, okay. And, and interviewed her, and uh, we were asking her about her first kill and where she went and how she got into it. And, and of course, you know, a lion. And of course, I'm sitting here thinking I am completely inferior now. Like my first deer kill was. <laughs> You know, was over a feeder at 100 yards with a 30-30. She goes out and hammers the king of the jungle, like, you know, on her first time, you know. I thought, oh, was that, was it? I, I got, I got to get out Was more. it Africa? An African yeah, lion? Yeah, oh, okay. Yeah, I got yeah, you. Yeah. Lion, lion. That was her lion, first lion. hunt? That's pretty yeah, wild. Yeah, with her dad. Yeah. Yeah, it was a great story. I thought, God, I I, I need to get out more. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. This is terrible. I <laughs> oh, mean, there's so yeah. much fun hunts. I, You know, it's funny you say that, Dean, because I wish – I mean, I love mule deer hunting. I love elk hunting, but I I wish people didn't have you know they didn't get hung up on certain types of hunts. You know, just yeah. you, you know or whatever, because there's so many fun hunts. Like when you guys mentioned pig hunting or axis deer hunting, I'm like, yeah, that'd be fun. You know, yeah. like yeah. there's so yeah. many fun hunts. It's crazy, you know. Well, and even Travis and I were talking about this before. I said, you know, that hunting is a selfless, selfish sport that I have never heard anybody ever come back and go, eh, you know. Was whatever. Yeah. Like, there's always a great story, or there should be. Yeah, know, yeah sure. A great yeah, story, yeah. a great camaraderie, fun, something always fun. You know, funny always happens, and uh, those are those are the best the best memories, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. You know? no, I agree. As much, as much as you want to harvest something, um, you know, just being out there and, and having a good time. So, it's yeah. Uh, it, I wish more people would do it. So, yeah, for yeah. sure. But, well, uh, I think it was about time we wrapped it up here, guys. But man, I, Cliff, I really appreciate you coming yeah. on. Man, it's been really great hearing your perspective on all this. And uh, you know, fellow hunters, so guys, if y'all are watching, go ahead and check out Cliff's channel. 
uh, Cliff Gray. And also check out his website, uh, Pursuit with Cliff. And uh, like I say, he has some amazing stories and uh, really great advice on his channel. I especially love his videos about glassing. I mean, you're passionate about glassing. I know I've seen the, all the videos on it. So, cool, man. Uh, but uh, yeah, anything else to say, guys, before we end it off? Now, Cliff, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I hope you get some uh, some fresh lobster down there when you're. <laughs> yeah, we'll get it. We'll get it eventually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, definitely, definitely put it put it up on your channel so we can see it and live. Yeah, yeah. For, <laughs> for sure, man. But hey, thanks for having me on, guys. I enjoyed the conversation. I'll uh, I'll get down there to Texas and go go pick on with you guys. Oh, for sure, right. for yeah, sure. Man. Reach yeah. out, we'll reach out. We'll go hammer some. It'll be it'll be fun. All right, sounds good, guys. <laughs> All, right, guys. All right, thanks for tuning in, Predators. And as always, guys, keep defying the odds. See ya. All right. Thanks, guys. See ya.